This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Hello there again. Another exciting week in Michigan politics. Uh, last weekend were the two major party state conventions held within a few miles of each other in mid-Michigan. Republicans uh, were on Saturday uh, in the Lansing Center, and the Democrats stretched their convention from Saturday into Sunday at the Breslin Center on the Michigan State University campus in East Lansing, just a few miles to the east. Uh, the conventions were pretty uneventful, really, because uh, most of the nominations had been pretty well decided before the conventions even took place. The Democrats had an endorsement convention in Detroit back in the spring where they pretty much settled on their slate of candidates. Uh, Republicans had a few contested offices like for attorney general and secretary of state. Uh, but the uh, favorites in each case ended up winning the nominations uh, pretty handily on Saturday in the Lansing center. Um, I will just say that these conventions nowadays are carryovers from what used to be three-day conventions starting on a Friday and extending into Sunday for both parties. This was years ago. And now the Republicans have got everything condensed into about four or five hours on one day. The Democrats are still going with a two-day convention, and there's some discussion that they ought to shorten their conventions two to one day because uh, when Gretchen Whitmer, the Democratic gubernatorial nominee, got up to give her kind of victory speech um, urging the party unity and uh, energizing it, it was 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, and about half the delegates had already left and gone home. I mean, this is kind of like George McGovern in his famous uh, speech accepting the Democratic nomination in 1972 at 2 in the morning, uh, which nobody saw or heard uh, because everybody tuned out their TV sets at that time, uh, much less uh, who was in the convention hall to hear George McGovern speak at 2 in the morning. So uh, probably the Democrats are going to condense theirs. One other thing uh, growing out of that convention, kind of interesting, um, a man named Christopher Graveline, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, a former assistant U.S. attorney uh, in uh, Michigan Eastern District, uh, filed to run for attorney general as a no-party candidate. And the Secretary of State said, you did not meet the criterion for... Uh, getting your name on the ballot. Uh, law requires you get 30,000 signatures. He only handed in slightly over 15,000, about half as many as supposedly needed. So he went to federal court and he got a judge this week, Victoria Roberts, federal judge, to rule that Michigan's law is arbitrary and capricious in demanding a 30,000 seat uh, excuse me, signature threshold and that 5,000 ought to be good enough. Now the state has filed an appeal to judge Roberts ruling, 
But the bottom line is if Graveline gets on the ballot, the Democrats are a little worried that he may siphon votes away from their nominee for Attorney General Dana Nessel, who is considered to be a pretty liberal candidate. Graveline would be much more in the center and that he might hurt her chances against the Republican nominee, uh, Tom Leonard, the state speaker of the House, who's uh, the attorney general candidate for the Republicans. So we'll see where that goes. Uh, Also, there's some stuff going on in the legislature next week involving two possible ballot proposals in November in the general election. One is on the minimum wage. The other is on earned sick leave. And it's very possible that the legislature with a Republican majority, which does not like either one of these proposals, could choose to simply adopt the proposals by majority vote in the House and Senate, and that would preclude them from going on the ballot on November 6th. And then the Republicans could come back later and amend what would then be laws on minimum wage and earn sick leave and change them in whatever way they think they want to do with a majority Republican vote. Now, the Democrats, minorities in both the House and Senate, object to what the Republicans are talking about, although one of the proposals on minimum wage actually has some opposition from a constituency that you might think would be a Democratic interest group, uh, tipped workers who think they are not actually going to be helped at all by the minimum wage proposal if it's adopted either by the legislature or by the voters that they would actually be hurt. So Democrats might want to make some kind of a deal with Republicans in the legislature on that one. We'll see what happens. Um, The only other thing I'd like to take note of this week is uh, the death of John McCain. I think everybody knows about we've been engulfed in uh, expressions of mourning and grief all this week. Uh, he died last weekend. Uh, he is being mourned uh, by a vast array of politicians of both parties, uh, members of uh, the military, and a healthy slice of the American people who revered him as uh, a national hero, in a sense, because of his uh, wartime record in captivity in Vietnam and what he's done ever since then. Um, I'll just take note of two other deaths that have taken place in the political community involving Michigan figures. Uh, These have gotten virtually no attention from any news source in Michigan whatsoever. Uh, These people were not of the stature of John McCain, make no mistake about it, but in their own uh, ways, they were important contributors Uh, to politics and government in Michigan. Both uh, were Republicans, just like John McCain. The first was uh, Albert Applegate, who died uh, at the age of 89. Uh, He spent most of his childhood living in East Lansing. Um, His wife, Beverly, preceded him in death two years ago. Uh, He was a graduate of Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs and the University um, of uh, Michigan. Um, He uh, got a master's degree in political science there. Uh, He engaged in a career dedicated 
into public service thereafter. After graduation, he taught political science at Eastern Michigan University from 1959 to 63. And then he became principal speechwriter and administrative assistant to Governor George Romney, the father of Mitt Romney, uh, when George Romney was governor between 1963 and 1969. And when George Romney was appointed Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, uh, Applegate accompanied him to Washington, D.C., served as an executive in the office of the Secretary of HUD, which is the acronym for Housing and Urban Development from 1969 to 73 in the Nixon administration. Uh, Applegate also served as chief of staff for U.S. Senator Robert Griffin of Michigan and U.S. Senator John Warner of Virginia. Uh, in 1993, the Applegates, husband and wife, returned to Michigan, decided to get out of Washington, D.C., and they opened the Applegate Collection in Sutton's Bay, northwest of Traverse City, where they restored and sold antique wicker furniture. Uh, so that was Albert Applegate uh, of Sutton's Bay, uh, somebody who actually was a key figure with George Romney. Uh, there's somebody else I want to mention, but we're going to take a short break and come back with a guest, and we're going to talk about this other uh, recently deceased potentate in Michigan politics for years, Jerry Rowe. Back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We're back, and we've got a special guest here this morning. It's State Senator Rick Jones, who serves the 24th State Senate District. If I got the number right before that, he was a state representative for three terms. So he's ending uh, 14 years in the Michigan legislature at the end of this year because, unfortunately, he's term limited. But, Senator Jones, welcome to The Political Insider. I would like to just start out by talking about somebody that you knew very well. Um, I wanted to talk about him in the first segment, but ran out of time because we talked about another person who just died named Al Applegate, who was a, a key administrative assistant and chief speechwriter for Governor George Romney back in the early 1960s and um, who died at the age of 89. But Jerry Rowe, Jerry Dale Rowe, uh, whose uh, sign-off or trademark phrase was blue skies and happy trails, uh, was known as Mr. Republican to a lot of people in the Republican Party in Michigan for several decades. Uh, he was an adjunct professor um, at Lansing Community College. Uh, he's probably best known for his 10-year stint from 1969 to 79 as executive director of the Michigan Republican Party. Before that, he was the field organizer 
for the Republican Party for many years. Uh, he was actually declared a Michiganian of the Year by the Detroit News in 1986. Uh, he's the father of Jason Rowe, uh, who is a uh, prominent political consultant in California and was former deputy campaign manager of the 2008 presidential primary campaign of Mitt Romney. Uh, Jerry Rowe, uh, who died last weekend, the same weekend with John McCain, was born in 1936. He graduated from, I don't know if you pronounce it Haver out there or Havre in French, high school in Haver, Montana in 1954. He graduated from high school. He went on to graduate from the University of Great Falls in 1958. Uh, while at Great Falls, uh, Jerry had already caught the political bug. He was president of the university's Republican Club, the chairman of the Cascade County Young Republicans, and the chairman of the Montana Federation of Young Republican Clubs. Um, he then came eventually through Minnesota and Washington, D.C. to Michigan uh, in the mid-1960s. And as I mentioned a minute ago, he eventually became executive director of the state Republican Party. Uh, he faced criticism periodically. Uh, he was pretty provocative in a lot of the things he said and did. Uh, he faced criticism when he marshaled uh, Republican resources to gubernatorial and U.S. Senate candidates at the expense of local candidates, some felt. And Jerry Rowe's response was, I'm a Republican's Republican. I don't care if we have liberals or conservatives as long as we win. And it was Jerry Rowe who resurrected the campaign whistle-stop tour, reminiscent of President Truman's come-from-behind victory in 1948 for President Gerald Ford's fledgling 1976 uh, May of 76 primary campaign, presidential primary in Michigan against, guess who? Fellow Republican Ronald Reagan. Uh, they ran against each other for the nomination that year in 1976. And Jerry came up with the idea of a 166-mile train ride, uh, which became, uh, many felt, uh, a key element in Ford's almost two-to-one trouncing of Ronald Reagan in Michigan uh, in that race. The engine uh, that led the president's procession was the Grand Trunk Western Railroad Screaming Eagle, a red, white, and blue locomotive selected as the best train design by Rowe, who was president of the Michigan Historical Commission and two other judges for Michigan's 1976 celebration of the U.S. Centennial. Uh, I mentioned that Jerry was named a Michiganian of the Year in 1986. Uh, he was often relied on as a Michigan Republican historian, and uh, he's associated always, I think, with the moderate Millican Republican wing of the party, a name for the former governor, who, by the way, is still alive at age 96. Uh, in Traverse City. Uh, Milliken's terms span uh, nearly all of Jerry Rowe's stint as a Republican state director. And uh, Jerry said about Milliken, quote, even during his gubernatorial years, Milliken was not representative of his state party. Uh, when county party Republican chairman descended on Lansing to meet with me, this is Jerry Rowe speaking, and I'm quoting Jerry, they would say things like, if that goddamn Milliken doesn't shape up, unquote, then they'd go to a reception with him and tell him how much they loved him. So that was uh, part of Jerry Rowe's 
shtick. Uh, he later supported John McCain's presidential run in 2000. Uh, as a member of his Michigan Steering Committee, he'd also support McCain during his 2004 election run where the Associated Press uh, reported Rose's prediction of a 2008 McCain nomination. Rose said, quote, he's pretty well set to go in four years. Politicians that go any place are like rock stars. McCain is a rock star, unquote. Uh, Jerry was elected a delegate to the Republican National Convention in 2004. He was elected in 2008 at Michigan Republican State Convention as a presidential elector for John McCain in the 7th Congressional District. Unfortunately, didn't get to cast any vote for John McCain because John McCain got wiped out by Barack Obama in the 2008 election, as I think everybody knows. Uh, Jerry is been, up until the time of his death, uh, most active as a senior advisor, a senior policy advisor to state senator, guess who? Rick Jones. Uh, and Rick Jones is our guest this morning. <clears throat> and I'd just like to ask you, Rick Jones, do you have anything to add to this? I mean, I'm just trying to take note of both Applegate and Roe as people who really did make a difference in Michigan politics at one time and whose passing from the scene, I think, has not gotten perhaps the recognition that it deserves. Well, yes, uh, Jerry Rowe was really an icon. Uh, people sought him out from across the nation, uh, and certainly local candidates all went to him for advice. He was my campaign manager for six different campaigns, including the first one, which was for sheriff. And of course, I won each one. Uh, Jerry was always happy to help young people, uh, people that wanted to break into politics. Uh, as a Lansing Community College professor of political science, government, uh, he was really a super guy. And I can tell you that students uh, years later would remark about he really got them started in life. And uh, of course, uh, a little inside, uh, Jerry was uh, very friendly with Romney. He was very friendly uh, with Milliken. Uh, he and Engler didn't get along so well. It, it, uh, so he, he went on uh, into teaching, and, and I think that was uh, very good for our state to have him as a teacher. And by the way, he also was uh, on the Historical Commission, and he placed uh, more green marker historical signs around the state than anybody, including the one in Jackson, which was the birthplace of the Republican Party. And he's very famous for that and all the work he did on that. Yeah, another thing, uh, Senator, he was fascinated with cemeteries. And didn't he visit or try to visit the grave sites of every former governor of Michigan, like dating back to 1837? And I think he hit them just about all. There was one who escaped to South America, and Jerry always used to moan and groan that, you know, that was one he missed, and he wished he could somehow find that one. Did you ever hear about that? I, I certainly did, and I, I can tell you that uh, I would take him to many uh, grave sites, and we would have uh, day trips. Uh, we went down to Novi one uh, time because I wanted to see uh, the burial site of 50 men known as the Polar Bears who went into Russia in World War One and tried to prop up the Tsar's army, of course, when the uh, communists took over. And we lost uh, many Michiganders there in Russia. It's a very little-known historical fact. So I wanted to see that. But while we were there, uh, Jerry Rowe had to take me over to a gravesite of uh, one of the many people that played the Lone Ranger on the range <laughs> 
Was that Brace Beamer? I believe it was. Yeah, exactly. I remember Brace Beamer from the 1940s and 50s. I think he lived in Lake Orion uh, in Oakland County. Well, look, uh, Rick Jones, you've got a lot to talk about and brag about with respect to your own legislative career. Look, let's take a short break here. We're going to come back with Rick Jones. He's going to tell us more about his incredible record of bills that he ushered into law, signed into law as public acts. Back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We're back, and our special guest is State Senator Rick Jones, um, who piled up 168. Now he says it's up to 170 bills that um, he has had signed into law since he became a state representative beginning back in 2005 and extending through three two-year terms in the House and then two four-year terms in the state Senate, a total of 14 years. In the article in the State Journal, which took note of your accomplishments, Senator Jones, I noticed that um, one of your Senate colleagues, Tanya Schutmaker, who just ran for the Republican nomination for attorney general and lost in a fairly close contest with Speaker of the House Tom Leonard at the recent state convention a week ago, she actually is runner-up to you with 129 laws assigned uh, into public act. Um, I was surprised and I, you know, she's term limited like you. She's out at the end of this year. Does she have enough bills left in the pipeline? Uh, (laughs) Either waiting house approval or on the governor's desk to even come close to catching you? Uh, No, I don't believe so. But uh, again, I I want your listeners to know, uh, I certainly don't consider this a contest. I'm proud of each and every bill that I got signed into law. Uh, they're good, common-sense, bipartisan laws. And uh, because Tanya served with me on uh, judiciary, uh, you know, we handle more law than any other uh, committee in Lansing. Uh, in fact, uh, the Senate Judiciary handled so many bills that the House created two different committees to handle all of the volume that we sent them, because the, the the House, and I'm not being critical here, they simply cannot uh, get bills done like we do in the Senate uh, judiciary. I require all of the senators to know ahead of time what they're voting on. I, they don't come in and uh, suddenly learn about something at the committee. They studied ahead of time. Yeah, Senator, uh two things uh, come to mind from what you are saying here. And I think it's very important. This isn't talked about enough. Um, but for instance, I personally think getting a quantity of bills and whatever the subject matter signed into law is quite an accomplishment. I mean, most people just don't take note of it or know about it. Uh, they look at some big dramatic issue and some individual legislator who might be associated with it. And that's all they focus on. That may be the only issue that legislator is ever known for. And you are connected to so many different things. And apparently Tanya Shootmaker is too. But it's interesting to me, there are some people, particularly I would say in the Republican Party, 
out there in the electorate um, who think, you know, too many laws are passed. We shouldn't have so many laws passed. And I noticed that Tanya Shoemaker, who could have made something out of the fact that she got more bills passed during her tenure than anybody but you, I don't think she ever even brought that up. Do you think she wanted to keep that kind of chatter down? Uh, didn't want it to be known to a lot of the delegates at the convention that she got so many bills passed because they'd say, well, you know, why is that a good thing? It's a bad thing. We've got too many laws. She shouldn't have gotten so many laws passed. What do you think? Well, what I have explained to uh, Republicans that have brought that up, you know, a good conservative doesn't pass so many laws. Well, I make them understand that most of these things are tweaking current laws or getting rid of bad laws. Very few are actual new laws that become, you know, brand new acts. And, uh, uh, well, a good example, a very obscure law from probably the 1800s was the Dower Law. And uh, probably most of your listeners have never heard of it. But I can tell you that realtors and title companies said, oh, please get rid of this archaic law. And everybody was afraid of it because they didn't understand it. But uh, what it what it said, basically, was uh, uh, the woman had the right in a marriage to sell the house, but not the man. And it was just a bizarre thing that uh, everybody supported getting rid of it, including uh, the ACLU and uh, uh, many of the uh, more liberal groups, as well as the conservative groups. Well, that's fantastic. See, that's the kind of thing people don't really know. Um, and, and I know you, you can cite some other examples of issues that people brought to your attention that cried out for action from the legislature. And apparently you are the only one willing to take it on and get these uh, ideas and suggestions that constituents made to you, or maybe even people who didn't live in your district saying, this has got to be changed. And you really undertook to do that. And you draft a bill and you'd get it introduced and you'd get it through the committee process and get it passed by the house and Senate and get it signed by the governor. I mean, it's fantastic. And by the way, here's the other thing I want to ask you. Um, you are not a lawyer. And, uh, before you, there was a chairman of the Senate judiciary committee for years. This is, we're talking back 20, 25, 30 years ago named Bill Van Regenmorter. And he was from Western Michigan. He was not a lawyer either. Like you, he was not a lawyer. Now, back in the old days, a uh, half a century ago or a century ago, I don't think the speaker of the house or the Senate majority leader would have thought of appointing anybody to chair the judiciary committee who wasn't a lawyer. Uh, the people who chaired the Judiciary Committee in the House and Senate in those days, they were all lawyers. Uh, even though there weren't that many lawyers in the legislature, maybe half a dozen or a dozen out of 140 or 148, depending on how many members we had in the House and Senate at that time. But most recently, Bill Van Regenmorter was given that responsibility, and then you were given that responsibility. And I think by anybody's estimation, you two guys probably are going to go down as being the most productive, best uh, judiciary committee chairman in the legislature 
in the last certainly half century, if not the last century, maybe Michigan history. What is your reaction to what I've just said? Well, it's uh, probably a little known fact, but Van Riegenmorter was my mentor. As a freshman, everybody is assigned uh, somebody that's been there for several years, and he was my assignment. So I would go to him each time I would put in a bill and work it through the process as a freshman. And he'd, he'd say, I don't think you need a whole lot of mentoring. You know what you're doing, young man. And, and uh, it uh, uh, really, the reason for my success is I use messaging and media. And once the media jumps behind the bill uh, and starts you know, talking about it, it's very hard to vote against it, even for a Democrat governor named Jennifer Granholm. <laughs> well, uh, give me an example, a couple of other examples of people who came to you with suggestions of uh, bills that they thought should be introduced and passed into law that probably nobody even heard about or talked about before you took them up? Well, as a freshman, uh, a National Guardsman walked into my office in uniform crying. And I said, sir, what's the matter? Sit down and talk to me. And he says, well, I was called up to duty and sent to Iraq for a year. Uh, before that, I had 50-50 custody of my 10-year-old son. And when I returned, the Ingham County friend of the court said, you abandoned your son, and we are taking away all of your custody rights. So I, I became quite angry about that. Uh, I uh, instantly uh, gave it to a local reporter, and she went on to make national news with it. And, uh, of course, I had the law completely uh, changed. So now, uh, for the court, uh, we're uh, judged nobody considered your service time uh, to permanently take away your custody rights. Another... Uh, let, let's, let's hold the next one for the okay. next final segment. We'll be back in a minute with State Senator Rick Jones, Republican of Grand Ledge. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We've returned here for our final segment with State Senator Rick Jones, Republican of Grand Ledge. Uh, Senator, you were about to tell us about uh, another idea that somebody brought to you that you got converted into law. Tell us about it. Well, I had a number of local people come to me and say, you know, we're very upset. We have these extremely liberal judges that believe if uh, somebody breaks into your home and they intend to kill you or uh, rape you, they think that the judges actually think you should go to a bedroom and call 911 and hide and not defend yourself. So I took on the process of writing the Michigan Self-Defense Law. Uh, sometimes nicknamed in the media as the asshole doctrine. So I began to study it. Again, I'm not an attorney, so I looked at history. Well, in 1925, Dr. Ozian Sweet, the grandson of slaves, uh, he became a very, very highly uh, educated and, and great doctor in Detroit. 
And remember, this is 1925, different times. He decided to move his family to a better neighborhood. Uh, within a short time, his house was surrounded by an angry mob, uh, including elements of the KKK. And it appears uh, they intended to lynch him. Uh, he fought back uh, with his family. His brother was there. One man was killed, uh, one was injured, and he was charged with murder. Clarence Darrow came in to defend him. He was completely exonerated. And certainly in Michigan from then on, it was known as a man's home is his castle. Uh, I took that case, used the messaging, and expanded on the law to make it you, that you may defend yourself from death or rape anywhere you legally can be. If you're not committing a crime, you may defend yourself. And I think this is a very, very important American right. And uh, because of my messaging, uh, I actually had an African-American senator, Virgil Smith, from Detroit, come to me. And he says, Rick Jones, I don't know what you're doing. But I've never had so many African-Americans from my district in Detroit ask me to vote for a Republican bill. And I want to sign on and I want to help. So that's... Uh, a uh, little history about uh, a very successful bill uh, that I was asked to break into seven parts so other people could also get some credit. You know, it's kind of amazing uh, with that court decision exonerating Dr. Sweet that somehow this hadn't been addressed by the legislature in all that time uh, until you took this up and, and really cemented it in a public act. That's correct. It was uh, simply a judge's ruling and could have been changed by any judge at any time. And in fact, uh, as I stated earlier, many judges were so liberal that even if somebody was breaking your front door down and coming in to hurt you, you were supposed to retreat to your bedroom, get on the phone, call for help. We're, we're supposed to defend yourself. Let me ask you about another very sensitive issue that came up, and I think it's just been within the last year or two, and that's female genital mutilation. Um, can you tell us about your experience with that issue? What, what did you do on that issue, and how did it become so prominent in the last couple of years? Well, we had a doctor here in Michigan it was discovered that she had little girls brought to her from all over the nation for this horrible, horrible uh, practice of mutilation. And so uh, Margaret O'Brien had put in a request for a number of bills and uh, asked she, me she's to a, take she's on a one. She's a Republican to make it senator. 15-year felony, yeah. and to make sure that we stopped this. There was no Michigan law against it. There was a very weak federal law, a five-year felony. But we wanted to make a message that was heard around the world, and it was. Uh, I, I heard from England, France, Italy. Uh, people read about this from around the world, and we made a very, very tough law. We sent the message, uh, no more little girls are going to be harmed in the state of Michigan, or you are going to lose your medical license, you are going to suffer in prison for 15 years. And in fact, uh, I was so successful a group asked me to go to a conference at Oxford University in London and had me fly in and uh, lecture there about how we were so successful. 
Yeah, Senator Margaret O'Brien, Republican in Kalamazoo, she was the one who introduced the bill. Um, in other words, Senator, this practice of female genital mutilation is some kind of a cultural thing in particularly what African countries um, where they believe that this is a way to, I don't know what, suppress uh, female pleasure uh, from the sex act or whatever. And that's why in those countries, this is a practice that is prevalent. And you basically were saying it's not going to spread in this country and it's not going to occur here in Michigan if I, Rick Jones, can help it. Is that correct? You know, absolutely. And uh, many states tried to pass the same thing and were not successful because they became uh, just a bunch of legislators attacking Muslims. I brought in a doctor, an expert from Yale, and she testified this is happening all over the world. It's happening in India. It's happening in uh, Indonesia and not just Africa. It used to happen in the United States legally. And it is not a Muslim practice. Both the Sunni and the Shiite leadership are totally against this. This is practiced by Christians. It is practiced by a small Jewish sect in Ethiopia. And it has nothing to do with the Muslim religion. This is about men controlling women. And when I put that message out there, uh, it was very hard to vote against it. Absolutely. Uh, you and Tanya Shootmaker and many other senators in particular, I think something like 26, 27 uh, senators out of the 38 members are term limited this year. You cannot run again. How do you feel about term limits? I mean, your inability to continue your work uh, with your experience as chairman of the Judiciary Committee with everything you've done. Uh, have your feelings about term limits changed from the time that you first ran as a candidate for the state house back in 2004 or not, or what? Well, Bill, I support term limits, but unfortunately in Michigan, they're the shortest in the nation, uh, six years in the house, three terms, two years in the Senate. I, I believe it ought to be probably 12 years in the house, 12 years in the Senate. We lose a lot of knowledge every time we have a massive turnover. Now, if you had a $57 billion corporation, would you constantly be churning the leadership and losing all of that knowledge? I don't think so. Well, that's exactly what Michigan is. And, uh, uh, yes, I, I think it's a mistake to be that short. They have a saying over in the House, the first two years the freshmen are learning where the bathroom is, learning where the meeting rooms are, and not getting a lot done. Their second two years, they're really starting to accomplish things I run the state, they learn the job, and then their last two years, they're really not focused anymore because they're looking for their next job because they know they're out. Yeah, wouldn't it help, even if you can't get the total number of years extended, um, if you had more flexibility? I mean, somebody could maybe serve seven two-year terms in the House. They could serve three or four four-year terms in the state Senate. I mean, even that would help, wouldn't it? Yes, it would, and and uh, I do support having some term limits. We don't want another uh, king of the UP, uh, Jacob Betty. Of course, was there for forty plus years, and and that's too long. 
Yeah. How do you look at uh, the turnover this year with all these new members coming in? I mean, you're going to have a huge number this year uh, in the House and Senate. I think it's something like 69 new members out of 148 going forward. Is there a role for you in the future to uh, mentor these people at all? Uh, What do you think the future of the state is in the next couple of years with so many new people. And by the way, a new governor and a new attorney general and a new secretary of state, because all the current ones are term limited as well. Well, unfortunately what happens when you get all of these brand new people constantly, it's so many at the same time. Uh, you have basically uh, staff and lobbyists uh, take over because you don't have people that have as many life experiences as I had. I had an entire career in police work, 31 years, and I was sheriff before I went. And so I wasn't afraid of, of, of lobbyists and, and media and that sort of thing. A lot of people that get these jobs are right out of college, and they really have never paid taxes or owned a home or had to struggle with life. And I think that's unfortunate that... Uh, Uh, We don't have people there a little longer. Senator Rick Jones, look, we could talk forever here. There's so much to talk about, so many other issues we could discuss. We could talk about, you know, what's going to be on the ballot in November. Um, And we'll get you back, but you've done a great job today explaining to a lot of listeners uh, exactly what goes on in the Capitol, why it's done the way it is, how it's done. Uh, congratulations on a great career in the Michigan legislature. Thank you.